Now, right, Genesis chapter number 47 this evening. Genesis chapter number 47 is really a continuation of the same subject of Genesis 46. Really, we pick up right where we left off. It's just giving you more details. And what I would define it as or summarize Genesis 47 as is the Israelites, really, and uh, Jacob himself settling in into the land of Egypt. That's what's going on. The, the Israelites are settling in into the land of Egypt. In the last chapter, of course, they were coming into the land of Egypt. And that is at the moment when Joseph got to reunite, the reunification with Joseph and his father, Jacob. That's what took place at the very end of the chapter. And right now, they're still, it's still fresh. They just showed up. It's picking up right where it left off. And what's going on is all of the Israelites, you know, 70 in total is what it says, not including Jacob, they're all settling into the land of Egypt. So let's pick up here in uh, Genesis 47, verse number 1. Genesis 47, verse number 1, the Bible says, Then Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. So no notice that they had just arrived. They just got here. And then he goes to Pharaoh and tells him the news. So we're picking right up where we left off. Verse number 2. And he took some of his brethren, even five men, and presented them unto Pharaoh. So it doesn't tell you specifically who they were, but it's probably some of his brethren that were more presentable because he's bringing them into uh, the presence of the king, right? Remember when Joseph was brought in originally to the presence of the king, what did they do? They shaved his face, it says. They washed him, and it says they gave him new clothing. So I'm sure he probably chose out you know, of his brethren those that are more you know, articulate, those that are more presentable. You know, I'm sure that that's what he did. Look at verse number 3. And Pharaoh said unto his brethren, What is your occupation? And they said unto Pharaoh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. Remember, Joseph actually rehearsed this with them. So he rehearsed this with him and told him, hey, this is what you have to say. Again, this goes back to the fact I'm sure he chose out people that he trusted that would do a good job when they stand in front, when they stood in front of Pharaoh. So notice they answered just how Joseph had, had, had trained them or talked them through it. They said, thy servants are shepherds, both we, he says, and also our fathers, saying all of us, all of us, right? And even our fathers, verse 4. They said, Moreover unto Pharaoh, for to sojourn in the land are we come. Now, to sojourn means to temporarily stay somewhere. So they're, they're saying, like, we're only coming here temporarily. That's what they're saying. That, that, that's very important because it doesn't mean, it, it's very specific to it being temporary. That's what he's telling them. We're not coming here to stay forever. We're coming here temporarily just to sojourn. So to sojourn in the land are we come. For thy servants have no pasture for, they, for their flocks. For, and because, the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Now this was rehearsed again with Joseph in the previous chapter. He talked to them, them about this. And notice how they're telling them, hey, they already have the land of Goshen eyed out. They already have that land you know, uh, basically set apart. That's what they're choosing in their own minds, where they want to stay. Verse number 5, And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. 
In the best of the land, make thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen, let them dwell. And if thou knowest any man of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. So right there you see the favor that Joseph has in the eyes of Pharaoh by the first statement. He says this, the land of Egypt is before thee. What does that mean? Saying just choose whatever you want. You can have whatever you want. You see how, how, how much you know, a pull, if you will, that Joseph has in front of Pharaoh or in the eyes of Pharaoh. Then he goes forward and says this, in the best of the land make thy father and brethren to dwell. So not only is he telling him, hey, you can choose out whatever you want. Pharaoh's saying, I want you, and I, I believe that your family should dwell in the best of the land. So you can see that Pharaoh, excuse me, you can see that Pharaoh thinks highly of Joseph. He goes on and says this, uh, in the land of Goshen, let them dwell. So that land obviously is a good land. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. Now activity is just referring to work, right? Active is someone that is that actually does work and knows what they're doing is what he's referring to. And he says this, then make them rulers over my cattle. So if there are men of activity, men that are workers and they know what they're doing, industrious men, if you will, take them and you can put them in a position of rulership. Again, it goes along with the entire verse where he is giving them, you know, uh, he's giving them, he's showing them favoritism. The best of the land is before you, and if there's any man of activity, he's saying that they have an occupation and they know things about cattle or something, they know what they're doing, they're active men, take them and not only just put them in the field, I actually want them to be a ruler. So the whole, this whole verse is about how he wants to uh, uh, show favoritism towards his family as well because of Joseph. So you can see because of the, the great uh, uh, blessings that Joseph have received, has received, that his family is now being able to take part in, in all of those as well because of the favoritism that Joseph has and the power and authority that Joseph has in the eyes of Pharaoh. Look at verse number 7 now. And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And it's interesting now that he brought in his father. Now you, you sometimes forget about this, but... But you can see from the past verse that Pharaoh obviously liked Joseph quite a bit, didn't he? he he's, he's showing him, like I said, a few times great favoritism. He's giving him great blessings. You know, he's, he's giving him a lot of things, right? You can see that he, he cares about him. And now you see Joseph even bringing his father in. You kind of, you know, when you, just, when you read the passages, when it's not discussed specifically, we can know that it's indicative of the fact that they had a good relationship. They were working together all the time. You know, it, it tells you that, you know, Joseph is set over everything for Pharaoh. He's like his, basically his right-hand man. This is the point that I'm making. Over this period of time, I'm sure behind the scenes that they developed a good relationship with one another. They knew one another well. He wasn't just his right-hand man, everything, the whole, you know, kingdom is delivered into his hand and he never spoke to him. I'm sure that they became close acquaintances, close friends, if you will. And that's interesting that now when his father comes, he's introducing his father to Pharaoh. He wants Pharaoh to meet his father. And this is, of course, because of the relationship that they had grown over time. He brings his father into him, and it says this. It says, and set him before Pharaoh, and then it says, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Isn't that, isn't that very interesting that Jacob blessed Pharaoh? You ever think about that? Jacob blessed Pharaoh as opposed to Pharaoh blessing 
Jacob. If you're familiar with the passage in Hebrews chapter number 7, it says, Without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the greater. Or of the better, it actually says better. The less is blessed of the better. Do you know who is better with Pharaoh and Jacob? Jacob. Because Jacob is the one blessing Pharaoh. Now, in the world's eyes, you'd look and you'd say, Well, Pharaoh is far greater than Jacob. He's far greater. He has far more authority. He has far more, far more possessions. He has way more pull in this world. He can get anything that he wants. I mean, look at the lives that they live. Look at you know, his offspring, whatever you want to point to, right? In every area of, of you know, carnality and material wealth, it doesn't matter. Everybody would say Pharaoh, right? But notice who blesses who here. So Pharaoh even recognizes that, right? Pharaoh even. And it's probably due to the fact, I'm sure Joseph probably shared, you know, the God of, uh, you know, his fathers with uh, Pharaoh. Joseph shared it with Pharaoh. So, you know, either way you look at it, you know, Jacob is the one that comes in. It's interesting that Jacob ends up blessing Pharaoh, showing that Jacob is better or greater than Pharaoh. Look at what it says next. Uh, he asks him the question, and Pharaoh said unto Jacob... How old art thou? That's interesting because of the next verse. You see why he's asking that question. He just looks at him and he says, How old art thou? Verse 9, And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are in hundred and thirty years. So he's a hundred and thirty years old. So this old, old man comes in before Pharaoh. And he's so old and he lives such a long life, he's able to just... Just by his appearance, he looks at him and he can tell, man, how old art thou, right? You know, my wife's 30 now, so I can ask her that question. How old art thou? No, I'm just kidding. I always make jokes about her being 30. I'm about to turn 30 in like a month now, so I can't say that any longer. But, uh, you, know, you know, you can see, obviously, Jacob looks extremely old. You know, he, even just from his perception, when he looks at his appearance, he's like, how old art thou? It says that he was 130 years old. Then it says this, few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. There's a lot in that statement that Jacob made. Right? Number one, he says, few and evil. Few and evil. Now, why did Pharaoh ask Jacob, how old are you? Because he was an old man. And how old was he? 130 years. Now, you know, I, what's the oldest person alive today? To date, right now. I don't know exactly, but I would say it's probably like 118, probably 117. It's around there. I know that I know that there was one time I remember seeing a woman that was alive within my lifetime that I think was 121 years old. So, I mean, getting to 130 is probably not, you know, it's not even. I know that there was a lady that I went into a, uh, a nursing home one time that was 109 years old. So, I mean, that's not, you know... Absolutely, absolutely, like out of the questions. People still live to like 110 sometimes. But how often do you hear about somebody being 130 years old? That's old. Let me promise you this, and I feel safe saying this you're not going to live to be 130 years old. And even with 130 years, you know what Jacob said about his life? Few. In the years of his life, he said they're few. He said few and evil. Few and evil. And he lived 130 years. The Bible says that man is promised three score and ten years. You know what that is? 70 years. So that's about the average of what you can guarantee to live. And even when Jacob lived to 130 years, you know what he said? Few and evil have the years of my life been. How, how much more so half of that? Almost, almost half of that. 
70 years. Think about that. You know what you're going to say at the end of your life? Feels like I lived very few years. Who feels like they're aged? Who, who, when they look back, they feel, you know, they're like stuck in time at like, you know, 25, 26. Now there's certain times where you just feel like I'm still at this age. I know that I have landmarks in my life where I, where I, where I look back and I feel like time just sped from one point to the next. Does everybody know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like the last time, like, where I sat down and thought about it, it was like I was 24. And now I'm 29 years old and five years have gone by. Sped by. I've been right about the time that I moved to Arizona. A big transition in my life. And I remember when I was like 22, 23, I remember a specific time in my life and I was like, man, it feels like just yesterday. And I would think this thought constantly. I felt like I was just 17, 18 years old. You know, if you, if you're, you know, what, if you are 35 years old or, or almost thereabouts, 35 is half of the life that you're going to get on this earth. Promised, at least, that, that's promised to you. That's half of your life. Jacob lived 130 years, and he said, few have the, have the years of my life. That's how he defined his life. You know what that means? It was short. The Bible says that life is but a vapor. It appeareth for a little time, and then it's gone. It's here today and gone tomorrow, like people say, right? The, the, you know what David said about his life? There's no exception to people. This. He says life, but he said that his life was but a hand breath. You know what a hand breath is? There's different measurements in the, in the Bible, right? There's a cubit, right? A hand breath is basically the smallest measurement. That's huge. A breath is the width of something. It's not even the length of your hand. It's the breadth of your hand. Do you know the reason why I did that? Because it's basically the smallest measurement in existence, right? There are some other small, but it's one of the smallest measurements. And he chose out that particular measurement to express the fact of how short he felt like his life was. Even Jacob living 130 years felt like, man, my life is short. Few years. An old man standing there, he says, My life was, was few years. You know what that means? You better number your days, like the psalmist says. You better, you better make sure that you that you you hold your time precious. That you manage your time, that every minute is important to you, and make sure that you prioritize things in your life and you do the things that are important. You know, you serve God with the time that you have. That's what we need to do with the time that we have on this earth. We need to prioritize that time. We need to not let, you know, uh, time slip away from us. Have all these plans and all these goals, the great things that we want to do for God, the great things that we want to do in this life. And then before you know it, you know what you're going to say? Somebody's going to be asking you, how old art thou? Right? And you're going to answer, you know, that the years of your life are for you. That's every person. There's no exception. Anyone you speak to, any older person you ever talk to, and you ask them, you know, you know, how how do you feel like your life was a long life? Do you feel like it was short? What does everybody say? What do you hear everybody say all the time? Constantly, I hear people talking about how I feel like life just flies by, and it does. Life just flies by. You need to make sure that you that you that you use your time wisely. Management of your time is so important. Look what it says next. Uh, so notice he makes this statement here. Something pretty interesting. It says, "It says few and evil." That's like uh, rough or hard, right? Or bad. He's saying, you know, and evil in the Bible talks about harm oftentimes. He's saying he had a hard life. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been. He says, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So he's saying is his fathers, his patriarchs, lived much longer lives than he himself did. Of course, we can see that from the genealogies that are listed here in the Bible. Uh, go to Hebrews chapter number 11. Hebrews chapter number 11. It's interesting that, that Jacob there refers to his life in the days 
on earth as pilgrimage. His pilgrimage. So if you look at Hebrews chapter number 11, this is, uh, this is actually how his life is described here as well. But not only did he refer to his life as pilgrimage, he referred to the life specifically of his fathers as pilgrimage. Their time on this earth. It says, the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. Now, what's, what is he talking about a pilgrimage? He's talking about a person that's a foreigner, right? A, a, a stranger, a sojourner. That's what, that's what a pilgrim is, right? Someone that is new to an area and it's not necessarily their home. It's a stranger is what it is. Those two words are coupled together in the New Testament. Look at what it, ca- it actually calls Jacob and his fathers. Look at what it says here in verse number 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and it says, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We actually saw Jacob confessing that he was, and his fathers were, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We actually have that in Scripture. It's interesting, and in the New Testament, you know, um, you know, actually quotes that, basically. You, know, you could say that's referring back to that in some sense, right? So it says that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And why is that? Because this isn't our home, right? We are not of this world. Jesus said that he chose us out of this world, right? Heaven is our home and Jesus is our father. Go back to Genesis chapter number 47. Genesis chapter number 47. Genesis chapter number 47. Look at uh, verse number 10 now. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out before Pharaoh. Verse 11. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Now, uh, a couple of things. Notice that he did. they did end up receiving the best of the land. So this area, this plot of land was the best of the land. Now, did you notice what it was referred to here in this passage, in this verse? It's called Ramses. Now, if you go back up, you'll notice in verse number 6 before it says the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen. And that's actually the land that Pharaoh granted to them. He granted the land of Goshen. And here it's referred to as the land of Ramses. And then if you flip over, you you may not have to, but it's in the same chapter, verse number 27. It says, And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt and the country of Goshen. So where they went and dwelt was Ramses or Goshen. It's referred to as, as both of those. Look at, uh, keep reading there, verse number 12 now. It says, And Joseph, Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with bread, according to their family. So notice that Joseph is giving them, you know, rations. He's making sure that they have food uh, for this period of time of famine. And he had promised this to them. That's how he convinced them to come down. He said, if you come down, that he was going to feed them and take care of them. We see him doing that and fulfilling his promise. Look at verse number 13 now it says, And there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, it's very strong, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So what that's saying is that by, what's it, what it means by him gathering up all the money is because everybody is having to come and buy food. Everyone is coming there, and he is receiving all the money from them. For it's, It tells you very plainly that it's because of the bread 
that there, it says for the corn which they bought. Remember, corn obviously is the wheat. So for the corn which they bought. So they're coming to him and buying of it. That's how he's gathering it, right? We would probably wouldn't word it like that, but that's how the Bible words, words it here. And then it says, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So then he takes the money and he's, he's storing this up and it's going into you know, Pharaoh's bank account, if you will, right? He's the emperor. He's the one uh, you know, uh, that, that, that has all of the control over the money in the dynasty. That's why it's referred to as Pharaoh's house. Verse 15. And when money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence for the money faileth? So a couple of things. Notice that they come to ask for bread. Now, what were they, again, before, what were they, they trying to get? Corn. So you see this over and over and over again. I pointed out a couple of times before. I've never had anyone show me this. Being in tons of churches, that's why I keep pointing out it's everywhere. So it's real important to understand these small little things. Little things like that can throw you off. Maybe you're reading another passage. You're like, you know, corn and whatever. You're trying to put something together. It may not make sense to you. So, uh, so number one, you had notice that bread is corn. And then number two, I want you to notice here when it says, and when money failed in the land of Egypt. Now, the Bible's language, the King James Bible specifically, is not exactly the same way that we speak today, right? It's not the same you know, uh, uh, you know, exact, you know, I guess you could say dialect. It's a little bit different, right? And what it's saying here is that their money is spent. Now, if you compare Scripture to Scripture, the Bible will define itself for us. And if you turn over to verse number 18, they actually, when they come back the second time, they recount these events up to that point. And it actually uses uh, the language that we would use today, how their money is spent. Look at verse number 18. It says, When that year was ended, they came unto him the second year and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord also hath our herds of cattle. So that's what already happened. He already took their herds of cattle. They, had, they didn't have these. This happened the first time. So notice, their money was spent. They lost their herds of cattle. And then he says this, there is not aught left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. So that's all that they have this time when they come. It's just their bodies and their lands. So they're recounting what happened with the money and with the herds. And we're going to read about that right now. But I wanted to show you what it meant when it says the money failed. It just means the money spent. There is no more money. It's saying the system of money right now isn't working because there is no money. The money's gone. And he says that he gathered, that's why it explained to you that he gathered up all the money. It's saying Joseph basically took all the money. There's no money. It's pointless at this point because hardly anybody has it because it's all literally in the house of Pharaoh. That's the point that's being made. It's very interesting. When you really look at that, think about that from like a social economic standpoint that he basically possesses all of the gold. Every bit of it is in Pharaoh's house. It's crazy. So it says, we're back to verse 15 again. And when money failed in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence, for the money faileth? They, they don't have any money. Verse 16, and Joseph said, Give your cattle. Notice. So sometimes when people aren't very familiar with the language of the Bible, it may sound weird to them. What does it mean, money faileth? Right? It's just saying their money's spent. They're saying their money fails, saying that the system of money, that's why people are confused about that. Right? The system of money. That's why it's using that, that phrase, failing. So for the money faileth, and then Joseph says, give your cattle. Saying, if you don't have money, then you need to give something for you. He's saying, give your cattle. And I will give you for your cattle. So 
Notice that as well. He's saying, I will give you bread for your cattle, right? I'm going to give you bread in exchange for your cattle is what he means by that. It says, if money fails. So he's saying, instead of you giving me money, because what did, think about this, it's very simple. What did the Canaans give him the first time they came? His brethren, that is. Um, they were Canaans in a sense, right? They were living in the land of Canaan. What did they give uh, Joseph? Money. They gave him money. So now that's why he's saying at this point, he makes the statement, give me cattle this time, basically, instead of the money. If money fails, if you don't have it, then just give me cattle and I'll give you bread for it. So look at now verse number 17. And they brought their cattle unto Joseph. And Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for the flocks and for the cattle of the herd and for the asses. And he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. So instead of the money, they used their cattle. Also notice cattle here in this verse. Is very, it's a very broad term. This verse is a perfect example of everything that cattle can be referring to. Uh, and it goes all the way from horses, and then it says cattle of the herds. It says the asses, the flocks obviously is referring to it could be either goats or it could be sheep. And then it goes on to say, and then, and then after that obviously it just says, and he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. So that was only enough bread to get them through another year. So this was an extremely bad uh, famine. If you remember the Israelites, his brethren had to come up twice. And they obviously, I'm sure, tried to purchase enough of what they thought would get them through this famine. So they, they ended up having to go up another time. And now you have even these people that dwelt in Canaan and some of them in, in Egypt... They're having to, after one year, after you know all of this period of time went by, they made it, you know, maybe three, four, five years through the famine, and then they sell. They have no money left because the famine has been so bad, and then on top of that, they have to give all of their cattle, and then only a year goes by, and they're out of bread again. Look at what it says in verse eighteen. When that year was ended, they came unto him the second year. And said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord also hath our herds of cattle. Obviously, you know, that happened already. We saw that. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. So now they come before him again. They're saying, like, we have nothing. We have nothing. And, and to be honest, there's nothing that I can give you except for me and my land. But let me ask you this question. If you were about to die, what options do you have? Nothing. You have no choices at this point. There's nowhere to go. The famine is just widespread. It's epidemic. The famine is horrible. It's over everywhere, right? And there's nowhere to run. There's, there's nowhere where you can go to get food. And this is their only choice. Look at verse number 19. Wherefore shall we die? Saying, why shall we die before thine eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of the Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate. Notice what it says, and give us what? Seed. What's that referring to? The corn. Remember, corn is, is wheat. It's, it's, it's seed. It's something in a raw form. It's some sort of you know, food in its raw form, like a seed, right? So that makes perfect sense there. 
But notice how they're to the point of this is obviously, you know, disparity. They're they're to the point where they are extremely desperate. And they, they realize what they're saying, and they're they're saying, Why should we die before you? I mean, you know, uh, they're basically begging him. Please just just give us bread. Why would you allow us to die, right? And they, they go on to say, Buy us, this is the proposition. This is what they're offering for the bread. Buy us and our land for bread. So they're offering themselves and their land. And then they go ahead and say, and we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate. So they're offering themselves basically to be, you know, indentured uh, servants. Uh, a form of a slave is really what it is. People may not like that word. Uh, in America today, but that's what an indentured servant is. It's a form of, it may not be, there's different, there's antebellum slavery, like what we had, that's what everybody thinks of that, that was here in the United States of America, you know, centuries ago. That's, there's all different types of, of forms of slavery. Slavery has always existed, and it's in different forms, but ultimately that's what they are, you know, offering is that we are going to be a form of a servant or a form of this type of slave to you. And, uh, it goes on in verse number 20. They say this, Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them. So the land became Pharaoh's. Now notice that this is where the Egyptians also, they, before it was the Canaanites and the Egyptians, but this is specifically the Egyptians that came to, this, that came to him this time. And they, they clearly... They, they were the ones that gave everything to him, and, and they lost everything. It tells you that he did buy it, and he bought it for the house of Pharaoh. Which that's interesting. It still shows that Joseph doesn't have, it, it's not his own interest that he's out. He has all this power and all this authority, but he's still working for Pharaoh, right? He's still doing all of this for Pharaoh, and he's increasing Pharaoh's house. Now, I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter number 25, because something like this is actually discussed, almost identical to this, is actually discussed in the law, when the law is given to the children of Israel. Uh, Leviticus 25, look at verse number 35. It says this, And thy brother, and if thy brother be waxen poor, waxen like become, right, or grow, and if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen and decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him. Yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no usury of him or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. Verse 37. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury. Same like interest. You shouldn't loan him money and then, and then charge him interest, right? If he is poor, you're not going to tell him he's about to die. Hey, you know, give me this amount of money, but when you actually get on your feet... You need to pay me, you know, 25% of that back, whatever I owed you, right? Or whatever I uh, uh, let you borrow, uh, lent you. And then it says right here that thy brother may live with thee. Verse 37. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. Verse 38. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if thy brother that dwelleth by thee be waxen poor... And be sold unto thee, thou shalt not compel him to serve as a bondservant, but as an hired servant. And as a sojourner, he shall be with thee, and shall serve thee unto the year of jubilee. Verse 41, And then shall he depart from thee, both he and his children with him, and shall return unto his own family, and unto the possession of his father shall he return. 
And then he goes on to explain the reasoning is because they were his servants and brought he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So there we can see a very similar type of situation. He discusses the you know the two different uh, 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 subcategories and with the different people. So you have like it would be the heathen, you know, the Gentile. If they were to in that type of situation, he goes on to explain it further too. If you want to read it, they can be considered a bondman. Right? But if one of your brethren, if one of those that are you know, an Israelite, they would have to be just a servant. And, and you need to treat him, he says, as a hired servant. Saying that you're paying him. That is very similar to like indentured servants. So, of course, there's a little bit of a, of a difference. And they, the main difference is that one of them serves with rigor and the other does not. It actually says that later in the passage. It, when it's talking about the way that you treat your brother when he is a hired servant says that you're, you should not make him serve with rigor. Then he contrasts that and says, you know, but of the heathen of those that are in the countries round about you, you know, they shall be your bondmen. Right? So they're not considered like hired servants. So you can see a very similar type of situation. If a person becomes, uh, you know, extremely poor and he's maybe your brother and, you know, he's, he's living, uh, you know, next door or something. He's living in the same tribe. You know, as you, if you were of Judah and he's of Judah, what he could do is he could basically do what Joseph, what, what the Egyptians did with Joseph. He could come to you and say, hey, you know, I don't have anything. I'm totally broke. All we have is my, our land and our bodies. Now, what you would do for that person is you would let them, you know, work for you. You could say on your property or whatever deal you wanted to work out, but he would be a hired servant. So you would still pay him for that. And that is what Joseph does for the Egyptians here as well. I want you to look with me, and you'll see that. Look at verse number, uh, verse 20. We'll read that again. It says, And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. Only the land of the priest bought he not. So he's, he's situating people, moving people all around, because they're buying land, and he's basically, like I said, he's a very industrious man. You can see he's planning these huge projects, and he's taking in all of this money and giving it all to Pharaoh. And it, it tells you in verse 22 again, Only the land of the priest bought he not. For the priest had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh. That's also very similar to the children of Israel. And did eat their portion which Pharaoh gave them. Wherefore they sold not their lands. Verse 23. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have bought you this day and your land for Pharaoh. Lo, here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land. So now he's, he has moved everyone around. He's put them where he wants them to be. And he's, he puts them on a particular property. Because notice it said that he took them from city to city. And he puts them in a place where they're going to be his workers. That's why. Because he wants, you know, he wants to be able to, you know, to manage them, to be a ruler over them. And he has them on, on properties where they're going to be working there. And then he gives them seed to sow. So he's providing them with the, you know, with the corn, which is the, the, the wheat. And he's going to be going out there. They're going to be going out there and sowing it. And then watch what it says next. Watch how this is going to work in verse 24. And it shall come to pass in the increase. So when, once, once it starts to, you know, you start to get some fruit from this. That you shall give the fifth part. It's like one fifth, of course. The fifth part unto Pharaoh 
and four parts shall be your own, for seed of the field, and for your food, and for them of your household, and for food for your little ones. Now notice that they are like a hired servant, aren't they? Because they're working, but they're actually keeping four-fifths of it. You understand what I'm saying? They're keeping four-fifths of it, but what, what are they doing with the one-fifth? That's basically what? It's basically usury, isn't it, in this type of situation? That's, that's identical to what it is. Now, in the law, you can say that the difference here is, you know, uh, that obviously the nation of Israel is not established yet, and those laws are specific for the children of God and for God's people for a very specific purpose. He set them apart, and he gave them, you know, uh, great blessings. And that was a part of it, that he treated them, you know, in uh, a lot of ways, they received special treatment. That's a fact. Right? And that's why they were to not charge usury of one another. Now, in this situation, Joseph is not an Egyptian, right? And the law, obviously, of, of the Lord would not apply in this situation where Joseph is ruling over the Egyptians. But what he's doing, if we contrast this, it's interesting because it helps you understand the situation here and then also helps you understand the law that's given, right? So what we see him doing here is he's charging them usury. This is a practical application of how they could charge usury. He's giving them something because they sold themselves basically to him. They're, they're, they're now his servants and they're working for him, but they are a hired servant. So that's why I would still call this a form of slavery in our mind because they sold themselves. But they are a hired servant, so they're working even though they sold themselves to him. And he's kind of dictating their, their you know, lodging and where they're located. He's moving people from city to city and things. He is giving them seed to sow, and he's allowing them to have four-fifths of it. He's allowing them to keep it, and it's their increase, right? But then he says, hey, one-fifth of that gets given back to Pharaoh. And again, we see how he is an industrious man. How he's, You can tell that Joseph is a, bit, he's a project manager. He's thinking, how can I give more for the... He wants to... Obviously, you can see that he's trying to serve for the house of Pharaoh. He wants... You know, uh, uh, to build this empire, he wants to build. You know, the strength and the increase of. You can tell that's what he's about here. That's everything that he's doing. It's building Egypt, which you know isn't. You know, I mean, it, it depends on the perspective that you look at it. Of course, from from many perspectives, isn't that great? Of course, right? It's kind of like Brother Elliot installing cameras, which are going to be used for the New World Order one day, right? Nice installing cameras, too. We were talking about that earlier. It says in verse number. Uh, look at verse. 25 now. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. Now, notice the humility. Like, you can, I mean, can you imagine going through seven years of famine where you're about to die and where you sold everything off, and you're to the point where literally your family is about to die? How humble would you think that, that would cause you to be? Where you literally have to go and and stand before the same man that you sold all your cattle, you gave all your money to, you have to go there and stand before him with nothing. And say, I have no other choice. My family's going to die. This is the only thing that I, the only option that I have. You know, why should I die? And then you just tell him, hey, I'm to the point now where I'm just going to sell myself to you. Me and my family and my land. And you can see the humility that, that, that they have. To the point where, notice this is very interesting. Because they have no choice, they have no options. They're as low as you could possibly be. They're in a bad, bad place. And they say this, verse 25, this is their view of what's going on. And they said, thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. Notice the humility that comes from them, right? 
Now think about this. Who is Joseph a picture of? Jesus, isn't he? What does Jesus do for us? He saves our lives. Now you were in a pretty low state too, weren't you, at one point? And sometimes you can forget about this, but you were you were in a bad spot too. You didn't have you were in bondage. You were in Egypt, right? You didn't have anything. You were in the worst, you were in much worse of a state than just having a physical famine. You were going to be dying and going to hell for all eternity. You know, and, and we see the Egyptians who are so humble that they go before Joseph. And they stand there and they say, you've saved our lives. Let us find grace in your sight. Saying, well, you know what? It's talking about them going out and, and, and agreeing to do what Joseph is wanting them to do. They're agreeing that, hey, this is what we'll do. We'll go out and work for you and do this. But what are they going to do? What are they, what are they, what are they giving Seed. So what are they going to be doing? They're going to be going out and, and sowing seed. Does that sound familiar? When we get saved, God calls us to go work too, doesn't he? God calls us to work. Go to Romans 12. We'll turn to this passage. You know what should compel you to work for God? Is the grace that God bestowed upon you. Sometimes you need to reflect back and... And think about it. You know, we, we now, you know, we go out solo, and we're always concentrating and thinking about how how that person got saved, right? And how they were delivered from hell. But that happened to you one day too. You were in that same state. You were way back where they were. You were on your way to hell. You were in a famine too, weren't you? A spiritual famine where you were on your way to hell, right? You were in a low place, a very low place, and somebody brought you the gospel, and you received the grace of the Lord, didn't you? says this in Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. So he's saying, I'm begging you by the mercies of God. He's saying, by the mercy that God has bestowed upon you, I'm begging you by that, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So notice he says that you present your body as a living sacrifice. You know what it kind of sounds like? A form of servitude, doesn't it? If you were just sacrificing your bodies, right? If you were just saying, hey, I'm just going to do whatever you want. That's, isn't that basically what they did in a sense? They presented, they made the decision themselves willingly, of course, right? Just like salvation is a willing decision that you make. And because we're saved, you know, the Bible teaches that God calls us to service. He calls us to do the vocation by which we are called, right? So we as Christians, once we're saved, it's not over. God desires for us to do work for him. And by the mercy that we were saved, you know, uh, or, or let's say this, you know, by the mercy that God saved us by, you know, God calls us to you know, and begs us, if you will. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He begs us to serve him and to present our bodies a living sacrifice. He says, which is your reasonable service? Notice that. He says, which is your reasonable service? Saying you're not going above and beyond by going out and, and going soul or maybe reading your Bible or by praying or by just serving God in general, whatever you want to think of, worshiping God, coming to church, this isn't you doing something just great for God. Like, man, I am like a five-star Christian. The Bible teaches that that is your reasonable service. And how did the Egyptians, you know, view what they were going to be doing? You know what they said? They said, thou hast saved our lives. 
And they were just thankful for the grace that they had found in the side of Joseph. And you know what they went and did? They went out because of the grace that they were thankful for and they sowed seed. What's the number one job? What are the, what are the Christians doing all throughout the book of Acts? And what is Paul constantly talking about doing? What was Paul's whole entire missionary journey about? His whole life about soul winning. You know, there is more emphasis on, on the work of soul winning than anything else in the Bible. Anything else. In the New Testament, there's more emphasis on, on because there's a world that's dying and going to hell. Because the number one most important thing is where you're going to be spending eternity, obviously. I mean, I, that's, I think that's pretty simple. That's a no-brainer, right? So if, we're, if we are to look in, in, at our priorities and look at the work that we're doing in our lives, one of the main things that we need to make sure that we're doing in our Christian lives is going sowing. It's that we're going out and sowing seed. And sometimes what you need to reflect upon for a motivation is the fact that the grace that you are given, the mercy that you have received, God, Paul, beseeches you by that. He says, hey, put in mind, keep in mind the mercy that you receive, the grace that you receive. Imagine yourself dying and going to hell, right? Imagine how bad personally, you know, that that would be for yourself. How horrible, how just, I mean, you, you know, it, you, devastating just hell. You can't even put into words how bad hell is. So you can't even sit here and just explain. You can't articulate how horrible hell is. That's what you deserve. That's where you should have went. And you know what he did? He showed you grace. And by that grace, and because of that grace, that should compel you to go out and go solely. Just like the Egyptians were willing to go out and sow seed because of the grace that Joseph showed to them. And the grace that Joseph gave to them. And what were they? What, what was the reason why they were willing to do that? What was the grace that they were shown? He said, because you saved our lives. What did Jesus do for us? He saved us. And what does he call us to do? He wants us to just go out and sow seed. That's what he wants us to do. That is the number one job of a Christian. That is what the whole New Testament is about. The entire New Testament is about going soul winning, preaching the gospel. Look at the book of Acts. Look at the book of Acts and let's look at every ministry that exists in the book of Acts. Where we actually, you see the letters that are written to the churches, but if we go to the book of Acts, it actually details accounts of what everyone's doing. And what their time is spent on. It's not just a particular letter about the details within the church. It's an overview, the book of Acts, that is, of what's going on with the Christians. And what is it? They're constantly preaching the gospel. They're constantly going out soul winning. That is by far the most important thing. And that is primarily what we are called to do. Hey, there's a lot of other important things. And of course, you shouldn't neglect the other areas of your Christianity. You need to make sure you're going soul winning. Men and women both. Everyone needs to be going solo. This isn't, you know, we all have different areas of our life that maybe we need to work on. We all have areas of Christianity where we're lacking. We all have different areas of, you know, just our personal lives that we need to work on as well. Maybe at our jobs and things like that. We need to, make, we need to look and make sure what's priority. Hey, let's look at our spiritual lives and what is priority within Christianity. What What is what does uh, what are the first works? What are all these things that, that Jesus is constantly you know uh, uh, you know uh, uh, commanding his disciples to do while he's here? See what the priorities of the Christian life are. Soul winning is, is by far is the most important because of the, there's more at stake when it comes to the soul of, a, of a mankind of human beings. So we need to be sowing seed in return for Jesus saving our souls. The least that you could do is go soul winning on a regular basis. 
The least that you can do is go soul winning on a weekly basis. Uh, you know, or uh, uh, go soul winning even more so. I mean, how, how much, when you look at what he did for you, could you ever go soul winning enough to pay him back? Of course not. So it's, it's hard to even put a number on. I, you know, it's probably not even right for me to say, hey, the least you can do is go soul winning once a week. The least you could do is go soul winning. Let me put it that way. The least you could do is go soul winning for the Lord. Go sowing, sowing seed for the Lord. Go back to Genesis chapter number 47. Genesis chapter number 47. Genesis chapter number 47. We'll pick back up there in verse number 26. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part. Except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. So this is a very similar situation to the land of Israel. And uh, he made this law, he made it a law that Pharaoh would receive one-fifth. That it would go into the treasury of Egypt, one-fifth of all of the Egyptians. So notice that's every Egyptian. This is every single Egyptian, I told you earlier, that everybody in the land, except all of Canaan and all of Egypt. So that so they this was basically when the tax first was a form of the tax. That's what usury is. It's like an interest, right? Where that was implemented in the land of Egypt. It says in verse number twenty-seven, and Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions therein, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. So notice number one that it says that they they uh, had their possessions. So they're, they're basically set apart from everyone else, right? They're not being affected in the same way that everyone else is being affected here, are they? They're not being affected like the Egyptians. They still have all of their stuff. They still have all of their, you know, uh, property and everything. They have everything. They're, they're set apart. They're receiving all these blessings because of Joseph, because of the greatness that Joseph has in the land. And because of that favoritism, they are receiving the same, these things. So it says, and they had possessions therein, and grew, and then it says, and multiplied exceedingly. So you can see they were fruitful and they multiplied. Look at verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 147. So notice, 147 years old. Verse 29, and the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put I pray thee thy hand under my thigh. So even Jacob, you can see the humility when he speaks to Joseph because of the power and the authority that Joseph had. He says, If I have found grace in thy sight, he says, uh, put, he says, Put I pray thee thy hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt, but I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. And he said, Swear unto me, and he sware unto him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. Now, if you remember, that was how Abraham had his, um, it was the steward of his house, Eliezer, remember, he had him uh, swear before he went out. To uh, bring back Rebecca, he put his hand under his thigh and he made him swear in the same exact manner. So, of course, this was something obviously that was passed down. It's not a coincidence they both came up with this thing, putting the hand under the thigh, right? This, of course, was given, you know, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, of course. And uh, 
And he's begging. He says, hey, you know, uh, bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. Now, if you remember, God already spoke to Jacob previously and said that he was going to bring him up. He said that he was going to, he promised that he was going to make sure that he brought him up from Egypt and brought him back into Israel. And uh, go back, actually, look at it tonight. In Genesis 47, it's verse, it's in the very beginning of the chapter. 46, I'm sorry, we're in 47. Back to Genesis 46, look at verse number 2, or 3. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. Now, is this, is this specifically speaking of just, you know, uh, of just him? It, obviously, the spiritual application is the new covenant, right? There is a temporary ap application and a physical application of the entire nation, which is always these pictures in the Old Testament. And you, you see him here say, he says, For I will there make of thee a great nation. And then he says in verse 4, I will go down with thee into Egypt. And he says, And I will also surely... Bring thee up again. Now, remember this promise was given to Abraham and his seed, right? It was given to Abraham and his seed. That's why it's interesting there in verse number 3 at the end. He says, for I will there make of thee a great nation. Now, was when Jacob dies, when he talks about him making them a great nation, when Jacob dies, in the sense of it being a, a, a large nation or a big nation, were they huge by the time that Jacob had died? Were they this big, huge nation at that point? No, of course not, right? So notice that this, this promise is, is not just specific to him personally and then him carrying him up. It's much bigger than that. It's much larger than that. A person, purpose that's going to be fulfilled much later. And it always points towards the spiritual. Every time it points towards the spiritual. You remember what uh, one of the things that uh, Moses said when, or actually, God told Moses to say to Pharaoh when he was telling him to let his people go. You remember what he told him? He, he told him to tell him that Jacob is my firstborn. He told him to let my firstborn go. Right? So you can see that implication of the spiritual there. Right? Jacob, specifically, of course the nation is referred to as Jacob as well. Israel is referred to as, as, as that as well. The promise, the firstborn is given to who? given to Christ. That's the ultimate application. But you can see, even when he's speaking to Jacob, he has to be able to understand when he's about to die, that there's a bigger picture here. That it's not just this personal thing that's just going to happen in his lifetime. That there's a bigger picture because he tells him, I will there make of thee a great nation. And then he says this, I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. Now, did he do that to Jacob personally? Think about that. Because what's about to happen, he's making the promise to do what? To bring him up physically, right? He said, I'm about to die, and I don't want to be buried in Egypt among these heathen, right? I don't want to be buried with my fathers. So he's asking, hey, please, you know, if I found grace in your sight, you know, when I die, don't bury me here. Carry me out to have me buried with my fathers, right? So you see the personal application there as well. But not only that, this is the promise of bringing up the nation of Israel, and ultimately the firstborn who's going to be Christ later. When he's telling him this, this is not only about Jacob. Because he says, I will go down with thee into Egypt. And then he says, and I will also surely bring thee up again. You know what that promise is about? That's the promise about Jacob is my firstborn. Let my firstborn go. 
That's the promise of, hey, I promised that I was going to give Israel, I promised that I was going to give Abraham this land. I'm going to do that. It's God saying, I'm going to bring you up again. Notice how he uses the singular, though, is what is important. I keep thinking I'm finished, but I'll go back again. Notice how he uses the singular. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. But there's clearly two applications there. There's clearly the application, because in his lifetime, he didn't make of him a great nation, in the sense of it being physically. But you know what? He did do that many generations later. And he did bring you know, the nation up at that point. And this, of course, goes back to the, uh, the, the vision that was given to Abraham, where he told him, hey, you're... Your uh, your offspring, right? Your you know uh, uh, offspring is going to go down into a nation and become you know uh, servants there for four hundred years, and now I'm going to bring them up again, right? So it goes back to that again. So you can see how you know this promise has the two applications. How there's multiple applications to that. But what's the ultimate application? All the application, of course, is in Christ. He's going to bring him up again, right? And I spoke about that last week, how it's, it's in Christ that, that the true promise is received where we're resurrected again. Right? talks about these all died in faith not having received the promises. So was that the promise? Was that the specific promise? Was just Jacob's body being brought back up and buried? I mean, that would kind of be a sad ending, wouldn't it? Where his body's just brought up and... No, of course not. It tells you, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. These are all pictures of them. That promise of, of bringing you to the nation. This is all a picture of, you know, the deliverance that Jesus Christ would one day bring to, you know, the nation of Israel, which is the spiritual nation of Israel, which is those that are saved, that he would, he would redeem all of the saved. Go back there, we'll finish at the end of... Uh, Genesis 47 again, the very end. Verse number, we'll read verse 30 and 31 once more. But I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. And he said, Swear unto me. And he swear unto him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. Last point that I want to make is, you know, uh, Joseph did almost the same exact thing. It's, it tells you that Joseph gave instructions, he gave commandments concerning his brothers. So he, he knew, he, they both, this is what it comes down to. They both believed, whether they understood every aspect of that promise, they both believed that promise. They died in faith. They knew that that was true. Jacob, God came to Jacob and told him one more time, hey, you're going to go down into that land, but I'm going to bring you up again. You know, you're going to go down there, but I'm going to give you the promised land that I promised you. And you see, Jacob, what's he doing? He's, he said, these all died in faith. Talk about the end of their life. They died in faith. The end of their life. Who's it speaking of? Jacob. And then it talks about Joseph right after that. Hebrews 11, if you're familiar with it. It's talking about, and, and, it, and it even specifically mentions the fact that he gave instructions concerning his bones. They finished their course, right? I have kept the faith. They finished their course. They died in faith, believing the promise. That's why I had to have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father,